0: Eric laid out the dispensational scheme of things that we see in Scripture with a number of, of its features relative to the names of God in the different days. And um, when we think of how all of these things center, <laughs> they all center in a person, we can say, Hail to the Lord's anointed. However feebly it might be, we can can sing to him, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. We remember a passage in the New Testament where David asked the Jews about that scripture in the Psalms. If he's his son, how does he call him Lord? Lord. And you know what that brings before me is, is that the Lord's anointed, there is the mystery of his person, which in the next day and tomorrow we desire to, to speak about, the mystery of his person, the one who is at the center of all God's counsels. Uh, number 40 in the appendix, if someone would
1: start that, please.
0: Now, I'll start with a question for you this afternoon. Uh, We just uh, sang this hymn with uh, four stanzas, and there are other hymns that might be somewhat similar to this, but uh, I see in this hymn a good many of the themes that we would talk about when we come together to talk about prophecy and about the center of prophecy, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what uh, passage of scripture might we say inspired this hymn? This hymn has expressions that come from
1: Psalm
0: Psalm 72. Thank you. Psalm 72. Where they rejoice to think of the moment while they're in trouble. Before they go into the lowest, darkest part of their history where they think that one day the Lord's anointed is going to reign. Now, this brings before me a major element. We might say, I I told Peter, I thought of calling this the key elements of prophecy. And... uh, over the last few months where I've jotted some things down and have turned to a lot of scriptures and looked into what are the uh, key elements or you might say the major principles, the foundation teachings of scripture that surround prophecy. I, I came up with an awful lot of material. You know, the Bible is a big book and there's a lot in the word of God that centers in these particular subjects. And if you think about it, young people, the Word of God, written by maybe 40-some people over quite a long period of time, 1,500 years or so, tells a unified story. It tells the same story. Men who never knew each other, never had opportunity to meet each other, Tell the same story. It's kind of an amazing thing. So you tell me. Let's start out. What are the What are the key elements? The uh, major teachings. If I want to talk about prophecy, if you're if you're as a young person, if you're interested in taking up prophecy, where what would you say is the uh, the major principles of prophecy? I'm just going to get out of the way right here. What do you think is the uh, Main subject of prophecy.
1: What do you think? Ephesians 1 10. Oh, I see. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And and you know, when, when we move aside like this, you know what I think about? I think about how John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he wrote those words to people who had to learn that there was a change. And when he was teaching them that there was a change, he told them that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Prophecy has to do with... uh, revealing the future to us, but it also has to do with revealing the past to us so that we can understand it. I not only want to know what God says about the future, I want to know what God says about the past. We want to understand what the Lord has to say about the history of man. Now, um, as I was getting things together and I I discussed this with Eric, um, we talked to A few times before these meetings, we want to keep in mind that uh, we have another generation that has arisen. Now, some of us who've been around for a few decades, we remember when we were young, and I'm sorry, many of you have heard me say this before, but I think about it all the time, how in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have generations. And each of those generations is responsible to take the things of God and to convey it, to teach it to the next generation in as pure a form as we have received it. We want to watch out for any admixture that men add to it through their various systems. We talked about some of that this morning. And those are, those are things that uh, are very important for us to seek out and to understand. It's not only do we understand the truth, but I want to understand why is it put this way by God? What does he have for me to understand when he uh, puts it in his word this way? Now, there will be, no doubt, some repetition. Eric touched on some things that I have here in my notes that I wanted to touch on in these meetings. And that's just fine. You know, in ministry, we don't look at it from the standpoint that someone is stealing someone else's thunder. What it really means is that we're all telling the same story. And if I stood up here and told a completely different story than what you heard this morning, we might say, well, you know, this is a group where, uh, you know, everybody's got their own opinion on this and that and the other. And yes, there are a number of things where people in all good conscience differ. But the basic substrate of what we're talking about here, the foundation teachings of scripture that center in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same story. And we need to remember that. And we, and we need to learn to sit at the feet of others who have gone before. Now, I, unlike Eric, I'm a strictly a book guy. I very seldom get on the computer. I would would encourage you, if you're interested in building a library, there are many who can help you with uh, what would be good books to have in your library that you might refer to. I, I have read a lot, but I have found that the older I get, and this is a good thing for you to develop when you're younger, young people, the older I get, I find that I more and more return to the things that have been the biggest help to me over the years. I remember reading a, one of my favorite historians is uh, was uh, Lord, Lord Acton, who, who was a 19th uh, century British historian, and he has a paragraph, and I, keep going, I go back and I reread that paragraph over and over, and he talks about the value of taking something and you gain something from a single sentence or a single paragraph here. And he actually has some beautiful language where he talks about a nation of unnamed people near the Dead Sea. Where did we get this book from? A nation of mostly unnamed people who walked on the sands near the Dead Sea and we have this book now that God gave to us through some number of those people, most of whom, we have a lot of names in the Bible, but when you think about the, um, the number of Israelites that there were at any particular time, and the number who, were, uh, who came out of Egypt, and the number who went out in captivity, and the small number, 40-some thousand who came back from captivity, and... However, many there might have been in in Jerusalem in the time when the Lord Jesus was here. it's quite a large number of people, and we don't know most of their names. But they were part of something there where the Apostle Paul tells us, what is the superiority of the Jew? Much in every way, but chiefly that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And young people, we have the oracles of God here in our hands. We have, we have a number of translations that we read. This is the new translation. I use the new translation most of the time, so if you'll pardon me, that's what I speak from. I have a few others that I read and a few other translations that are part of commentaries that I read. But we have been given the Word of God in its written form. And if I want to understand the key elements of prophecy and where God has taken his thoughts, if you will, and he has laid them out, the things that we heard this morning from Eric and the questions that we discussed, we have these things for us in the written word of God. And I I encourage you, I implore you to think in terms of becoming a reader of these things. Read the entire word of God. The entire word of God. I got a text a few days ago from my 88-year-old father, and he had just finished reading the Bible for the first time. And I was overjoyed at that. There are many Christians who have never read the entire Word of God. And along, uh, in in keeping with some of the things that Eric was bringing out, where if, if if you look at those charts and you see... Uh, just let's just think of these two things. The, uh, the dispensational names of God and the days. If you look at those two charts, any of the scriptures that you might reference under those different heads, what do they require? They require a familiarity with the entire word of God because the word of God from start to finish gives us this scheme of things. If I want to understand the different names of God and the significance of those names, I need to start not only at the beginning, but I need to see the areas where something maybe later in the Bible sheds a light on something that was way back. And that's why it's very important to read the entire word of God. Uh, Romans chapter 15 and verse four. Let's turn there. Now, this was... uh, Uh, If if not quoted, it was alluded to. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, For as many things have have been written before have been written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is addressing Christians. He's addressing believers in his day. The things that were written aforetime were written for our instruction. And Eric touched on this. The Bible is not all about us. And there was a story about the individual who didn't show an interest in prophecy because it's not about me. But you know what prophecy is about? It's about the one who has won my heart and brought me to himself. And I have thought often, I remember hearing when I first came among the saints when I was a young man. If we are occupied with Christ, everything in our lives will be in its right place. And of course, being a questioner, my question is, all right, well, what does it mean to be occupied with Christ? To be occupied with Christ is to be occupied with the things of Christ. And I have the things of Christ from beginning to end in the word of God. If the Bible tells me something, if it gives me instruction about something, even if it's not about me, I want to know about that and understand it. Because the Lord was interested enough in the development of my soul in communion with him that he wanted me to know what he was doing over here. Even though I'm not over here, he wants me to understand what he's doing. Don't we have this in Paul's epistles? Paul covers a lot of territory in his epistles. I'm thinking right now, in connection with our subject, of Romans chapters 9 to 11. Romans 9 to 11 is Paul's history of Israel. Past, present, and future. If in that epistle where he lays out the fundamentals of the gospel, that he would not have really wanted us to know something because it wasn't about us, wouldn't you think he would have left those chapters out? But in the the book where he helps us to be established in the truths of the gospel, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ, he takes up a big question. Well, if this is the way it is with God dealing with a soul, what about all the promises that he made to Israel? Well, Eric touched on those things this morning. He was talking, when we talk about the dispensations, we're gonna see things that were promised to Israel. We see the covenants, we see the promises. We see, uh, as you have in Hebrews chapter six, there was a promise that was confirmed by an oath. Two immutable things, the promise and the oath. The Lord wants us to understand those things because these are the things that have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of being occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, uh, I have a quotation here, and um, as young people, it's, uh, it's good. It's, it's been helpful to me over the years to realize that it's all right, it's good to sit at the feet of others who know more than we do. Somehow, somewhere, by the grace of God, when I was a young person, I somehow was given to see, you know, there are times when you need to go talk to somebody who knows more than you do. None of us are the beginning and end of wisdom. And that's why we can be thankful that there are others who have gone before us, who have dug the wells in some manner, some degree for themselves, And they have something to offer. Isn't that ministry? Ministry is something that we gain from Christ and we have it to offer to others for edification, exhortation, and comfort. And you know, even as young people, this is something that you can think about. Where is your bent? How do these things fit into your life? They do, you'll be amazed. This is a quotation. I asked the question, what is prophecy? If you were asked the question, what is prophecy, maybe some of you older young people, what is prophecy? If someone said, give me a definition of prophecy, what would you say? Anybody? Let's say that someone says that a particular individual, there have been individuals that have arisen here and there over the years who claim to be prophets. What's one of the things that uh, modern day prophets seem to like to do? And it always ends up being a joke. What do they like to do? Yeah. Trying to predict the future. Predicting the future. Such as date setting. I can still remember seeing a, a video a while back of uh, the, uh, one of the latest uh, dates that was set for the coming of the Lord. And uh, there was an individual who had been quite prominent in, uh, in bringing this about. And out on the street, he was surrounded by a whole crowd of people because the moment was coming. And there he was. And this was videotaped right at the moment when the Lord was supposed to have come. Well, we're sitting here today, so we know that the Lord didn't come and it was a mockery. There are times when prophecy has to do with foretelling the future. We generally don't look for that kind of thing today. Remember the Lord Jesus said that of that day and hour knoweth no man, but the Father only. There is a certain moment in history that is known only to the Father, and that'll happen at the time that he chooses. So this is a quotation regarding prophecy. And I think it covers some uh, interesting things. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. This is from uh, uh, C.F. Hogue and W.E. Vine, their commentary on Thessalonians, which I've appreciated in a number of ways. Though much of Old Testament prophecy was purely predictive, and then he gives some different, uh, different examples of that, Prophecy is not necessarily nor even primarily foretelling. It's not just foretelling the future. It is the declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. Now that is a good statement. In the word of God, God has given to us a declaration of things that could not be known by natural means theologians speak of general revelation. They speak of the revelation that we have in nature, the 19th Psalm, Romans chapter 1. But there is also special revelation, when God has revealed himself. Now, he may do that in Old Testament times. We we read in the Old Testament of prophets who spoke, and we have it written down maybe in the historical books, but we don't have a book by that prophet. We don't have a book by Elijah or Elisha. But we have a lot about them in the books of Kings. There were prophets who wrote, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, minor prophets. There are passages in Paul's epistles which are noted as being prophetic. There are aspects of the five books of Moses which are very prophetic. They take you from the beginning to the end of human history. Beautiful way. The declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. It is the forth telling, not just foretelling, the forth of the will of God, whether with reference to the past, the present, or the future. As I said, I not only want to know what God says about the future, I want to know what he says about the past. Because how can I fully understand, according to the mind of God, the history of humanity if God does not tell me? You know, history is a big field. I have lots of books in my library on history. Some come from this school of history. Some from that school of history. And how you should view history if you view history in a linear way or in a cyclical way. All of this is hotly debated. What is history? What is time? You know, if you think that eternity is a hard thing to define, try defining time. No one even agrees on what the definition of time is. You know, clocks weren't invented invented until, what, the 14th century or something like that? Time doesn't necessarily have anything to do with clocks. If I want to understand past, present, and future, if I want to have a grasp of the history of humanity, if I want to understand key elements in the prophetic scheme of things, I need to let God tell me. God is the one who makes the declaration. There's a lot of other things that we could take up in that quote, but I, uh, I just want to say, before we launch into some things, uh, here are some particular bullet points that I have as key elements of prophecy. That uh, This is another quotation, actually, from the same book. Please listen carefully to this, young people. This is very important. I wish that I might have had someone when I was a young person, maybe your age, that could sort have of sat me down and told me this. You know, I, took my, I, I got my lickens in one way or another, but uh, sometimes it's nice when you, you have a face-to-face and uh, you realize that you've been spoken to And that there's something that you need to take heed to. It is to be observed that the Christian sobriety. Paul talks about being sober, sober sober-minded. It doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of humor. But it means that there is a sobriety towards the issues of life. That we realize that, you know, this is just not a game. We're not just here to have fun for a few years and then come what will. That's not the way we look at life. It is is to be observed that the Christian sobriety of maturer years is the result of self-control and the study of the scriptures in youth. Get a hold of it while you're young. While you are young. Now, here is a moral principle that I have enjoyed. I love these words that I read. This is from... This is from uh, A.B. Bruce. He was a 19th century writer from his uh, commentary on Matthew's Gospel. And think about, think about this yesterday, today, and forever when I read this. He says, and this I believe is a good principle to keep in mind when we think about the elements of prophecy, studying prophecy, realizing that the Bible gives us this grand scheme of things from the mind of God. He says, moral laws. Moral laws require large spaces of time for adequate exemplification. Now, the context of that statement is when the demon, he comes back to the house and he sees that it's empty, swept, and garnished. And he says, I'm going to go take seven more demons. You know, he goes and he gets these other demons, Worse than himself, and he goes back and he inhabits the house and says the last state of that man is worse than the first. What's the next statement in that scripture? Remember the next statement in that scripture. So shall it be also to this wicked generation. How long has the history of man been? Because moral laws, moral principles require large spaces of time for adequate exemplification. In other words, if the powers of the heavens, principalities and powers are to view this theater of humanity's fall and demise and all of Israel's history, And the times of the Gentiles, everything that Eric covered from one end to the other, from the creation all the way to the eternal state, what are they beholding? They are beholding the working out of the principles of God over a large space of time. And young people, I will tell you right now, even though there is a lot of darkness in that study That is a fruitful study for our souls because it's there that you learn the greatest principles that there are, the government and the grace of God. I am so thankful for the government of God, but only because I know the grace of God. Because if it was only the government of God, what hope would there be that we could be saved? How could any be saved? But throughout this entire scheme of things, God has revealed his grace. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The dispensations, they change. God may take up with something differently today than he did yesterday, but the God who acts and the God who reveals and the God who deals with each of our souls, he is the same. Moral laws require large spaces of time for adequate exemplification. So what do you need to do? You need to be willing to take time. I often marvel at, I'll think to myself, you know, 20 years ago, I gave an address where I talked about such and such, and I say, you know, it would have been much better if you would have said this instead of this. Now, why would I say that? Because large spaces of time are required, even for each of us, to get a hold and understand and and enjoy these things in a deeper way. It's a lifelong process. Key elements of prophecy. And uh, I jotted down a whole lot of things, and I got to thinking I need to boil this down to... uh, just a few because time is limited let 's just talk for a few moments. I, I actually have about uh, I have about six different items written down here that uh, I thought about, and um, thought that I would just make a few comments about each of these and then, kind of like Eric said i don 't want to turn to an awful lot of scripture, but the thing is to see that all of you would follow this up yourselves. Now, I would like to give you a little assignment. Maybe you can do this. I, uh, I, I did this just the other night myself, just to check and see how long it took. Maybe before the afternoon meeting tomorrow, you can read the first two chapters of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that I just, I've been coming back to an awful lot in the last few years as I've been thinking about these kinds of subjects and other subjects. Hebrews is a wonderful book for tying together the old and the new and showing us what God is doing. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. This verse is at the conclusion of the book of Hebrews, but when we start the book of Hebrews, the first two chapters where we look into certain things, and there's lots of Old Testament scripture quoted In those two chapters, we learn certain very important things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are things that we want to always keep in mind because they are at the basis of some of the elements of prophecy that we are talking about. Now, the greatest events in the history of the world, what what would you say are some of the greatest events that have occurred in the history of this world, and I'm thinking about events that happened that the Scripture tells us about. So, things uh, prior to the first, and second century uh, A.D. What might we say are some of the greatest events in history and the history of humanity? Just let me let me just hear you throw out a few things that the Scripture addresses. What would you say?
1: Destruction of Jerusalem.
0: The destruction of Jerusalem. Now that comes uh, uh, in uh, a- actually after, uh, shortly after um, some of the books were written in the New Testament, and you know, sometime before maybe the latest books in the New Testament. The destruction of Jerusalem. Would you say that the destruction of Jerusalem has something to do with key elements of prophecy? I certainly would. Where did Jerusalem come from? Why is there a Jerusalem? What part does Jerusalem play in the Old Testament history? How did they take Jerusalem? Jerusalem was in the Promised Land, right? It was known as Jebus. And uh, who took Jerusalem finally? What was his name? Who led the charge? You remember his name? Titus? Say it again. Joab. Joab. Jerusalem, the place that Jerusalem plays in scripture. Where did Jerusalem come from? Why is it important? Who took Jerusalem? I was thinking of, uh, yes, Titus, that's true. That time... But you see, you see how those two things are, take, are together? I'm amazed. We could go on like this all afternoon and all evening because the word of God covers a tremendous amount of territory. Who took Jerusalem the first time when then David came and had it and was king? It was Joab. He's not even one of David's mighty men. And he and his brothers, they were a thorn in David's side. They were his nephews, Right? Sons of Zeruiah, David's sister. Because David said, whoever goes and takes Jerusalem, he'll be the first. You learn that in First Chronicles chapter 11. Jerusalem, the scene where Zion is, the citadel, the city of the great king. So, elements that, uh, things that have to do with the city of Jerusalem, that's center of Israel's history. That's very important prophetically. Why is that important prophetically? Well, I'm going to say this. Number one, the primary subject and center of all revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Eric quoted that verse this morning. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Revelation 19.10. Does anyone remember what happens in the next verse after that? I love the connection of those two. You know, the verse, chapter divisions and verses, those are not inspired. There are some places where there might be some sections, you know, like the five books of Psalms and so forth. But chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. After he says the testimony of Jesus, the Spirit of Prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, then the rider on the white horse comes, and that's the beginning of the day of the Lord. It all centers in him. Let's turn to Judges chapter 14. In Judges chapter 14, Samson tells a riddle. Verse 14 And he said to them, now he's going to tell the Philistines his riddle. Out of the eater came forth food, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. Now, a number of years ago, I was in a conversation, I was standing around with uh, a number of brothers at a conference, and we were talking about the subject of the great principles that Scripture reveals to us. What are the leading principles? Kind of like what we're talking about this afternoon that scripture reveals to us that helps to get our minds on the track of what God is doing. And Eric James was in that conversation and he pointed this out. Judges 14, 14, I think in some ways you could say is the overall overarching principle of all of scripture um, in a sense. Out of the eater came forth food, And out of the strong came forth sweetness. The Lord Jesus Christ takes every dark element of human history and he will turn it to blessing. He makes the wrath of man to praise him. He takes every movement, every thought that the enemy of souls has ever had and he turns it to blessing. You know, that devil, he can show up in the presence of God and say, you see this guy down here, Job? You know, he's going on like he is just because of these particular reasons and all of that. And so Job says he's in your, uh, the Lord says he's in your hands. And uh, so Satan has his little heyday with Job. And what do we find at the end of the book? The double portion. The blessing that comes in. We know nothing about the state of soul of his children that were lost. We don't ever want to be those who would say, let us do evil that good may come. But God in his sovereignty can do as he pleases. Not only does the Lord never do wrong, we can also say on the positive side, the judge of all the earth, he always does right. I can say, after many, many things that we have passed through, I can say, and I hope I can say at the end of my life, that he has never done me anything but good. Never. Even in the pain. It's always been a blessing, one way or another. So I think that's a good one to keep in mind. As an illustration of that, uh, let's just turn to uh, Hebrews chapter two. We'll read, a, we'll read a couple of verses there. And then we're going to go read a verse in, uh, in uh, John's epistle, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's, let's, uh, let's see this, where out of the eater he brings forth fruit, uh, food, out of the strong he brings forth this sweetness. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children partake of flesh and blood... He also, in like manner, took part in the same. That's the Lord Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God. That through death, he might annul him who has the might of death. That is, the devil. And might set free all those who through fear of death, through the whole of their life, were subject to bondage. He came to annul the works of the devil. Now turn over to First John. First epistle of John, chapter 3 and verse 8. He that practices sin is of the devil. For from the beginning, the devil sins. To this end, the Son of God has been manifested that he might undo the works of the devil. Now, come back to that expression of Lord Acton where he actually says a single sentence of Socrates and then a paragraph of this, or whatever, you can just focus on, and it's amazing what just a single sentence can open up. Somebody says, well, why did Jesus even have to come? Here's an answer. Here's an answer in just a few words. He came to undo the works of the devil. There's the answer to the question right there. This new translation I have is 1,510 pages long, and to answer your question, all I had to do was turn to one phrase. I don't need the 1510 pages. It all tells me the same story, but if somebody has a question, there's the answer right there. What is prophecy? Hebrews chapter 1. He bringeth in, he bringeth again the first begotten into the world. That's prophecy. That one right there. That's what the book of Revelation is. You could take that expression and write it right over the book of Revelation. He is bringing in the first begotten into the world. He came in humiliation once the first time and he's going to come in glory the second time. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing to feed our hope, isn't it? To know that uh, actually that uh, it's a my uh, second point that I want to make here, the second key element of prophecy. This is a very good thing to keep in mind. Scripture contemplates a complete change of dispensation. That is very, very important. What do the unbelievers in Second uh, Peter, what do they say? They say, you know, everything, it just continues on just like it has from the beginning of the creation. You know what that tells you? They didn't even believe in his first coming. And if somebody doesn't believe in his first coming, then his second coming will be nothing but terror to them. Those unbelievers, the first coming of Christ, didn't make any difference to them whatsoever, this world is a scene of a disputed right between Christ and Satan. I recommend Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Silence of God. I've mentioned that before. That's a very good book. Very interesting book. And he has a very interesting way of of laying that out in, uh, in the book. This world is the scene of a disputed right between Christ and Satan. Satan says, they listen to me. They turn their ear to me in the garden and they belong to me. And so what happens? You come to the point where he says to the Lord Jesus, he says, you know, uh, all you have to do is bow down and worship me and I'll give all of this to you. It's the prince and power of the air, the ruler of this world. But you know, he was really blind as to the one who was there before him in humiliation and and, uh, disgrace. The one in whom there was no beauty that we should desire him. The Lord Jesus, when he was here in humiliation, did the devil really have any idea who was before him? He's the most blind of all of his subjects, isn't he? What a a solemn thing to really realize. This world, the Bible shows us, this world is the scene of this disputed right between Christ and Satan. And if we have the Lord Jesus, we have the one who has won the battle. Be in the world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good comfort. I have overcome the world. Christ is the one who bruises the serpent's head. Now that takes you all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, where his victory is announced right there. That's known to be, he's the, he's the seed of the woman. That's one of, that's the, one of the ways that uh, the Lord is referred to in scripture, the seed of the woman. And we see how he had his bringing forth into this world through the uh, Virgin Mary in the early chapters of the Gospel, and God, by his power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he brought the Son of God in incarnation into this world. I, um, I think often of that statement. Uh, I, I still don't remember whether it was bellot or Wigram. Uh, were it not for the incarnation of the Son of God I should be ashamed to be a man. Who, who said that? Wigram, you told me that 30 some years ago, right? Dan pointed that out to me. The incarnation. If I want to know, you might say the greatest event that has ever happened, at least in the past, in this world, in human history, it's the incarnation of the Son of God when he became a man. But we know that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, the resurrection of Christ, and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I'm kind of passing over some of these things because some of this is the subject, uh, Lord willing, for uh, tomorrow afternoon. So that point two, scripture contemplates a complete change in dispensation. This world will not continue on in the condition it is today, indefinitely. This age and that which is to come, the Lord says in Matthew 12 and verse 32, I think it is. There's a this age, but there is an age which is to come. That means that this age is going to have its end. It's not going to go on indefinitely. And that's a very important element of prophecy, is that the present Time in which we are living will come to an end. And uh, when Eric, uh, uh, when Eric uh, had uh, one of the charts up there, he was talking about that this morning, I, I would imagine that with Daniel's 70 weeks, we'll probably hear more about that and how that comes about in the world. Uh, the third thing that I identified as a key element of prophecy touched on this morning, Israel and the earth are the center of of God's thoughts on prophecy, on prophecy. Here is a very interesting thing to keep in mind, and and this has to do with covenantalism that we talked about. The name Israel, I believe, is found 65, 67 times, something like that, in the New Testament. It always refers to national Israel. The name Israel never refers to the church. Even when Paul says, peace upon, you know, and upon the Israel of God, the believing remnant from among them, such as what Hebrews was addressed to. The name Israel always refers to national Israel. I very highly recommend, for getting uh, an outline of God's dispensational ways relative to Israel, a careful study of Romans 9, 10, and 11. It will repay itself many times over in your understanding. Very critically uh, important. Israel and the earth are the theater of God's, uh, the center of prophecy. Zechariah, chapter 12, verses one to three. Jerusalem is a cup of bewilderment, is a stone of stumbling to all who occupy themselves about it. Read Zechariah chapter 12. You see that Jerusalem is in the center of the thing. There, is, there, there are challenges, there are issues relative to everyone who deals with Jerusalem, whether they be favorable towards Jerusalem or in enmity against her. Jerusalem is at the center of God's ways of prophecy on the earth. Think about it this way. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 chronologically deals with about half of the years of the Old Testament period. The rest of the you know, Old Testament is about the same number of years. Here's the, here's, here's the beginning and the end of the Old Testament. Where is the call of Abraham? Right about in the middle. Now, what that tells me is that what happens from Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament would you not say that that's pretty important to God? If he spends 11 chapters introducing the early history of the earth and so forth and the dispersing of the the flood and the dispersing of the nations and so forth, and he spends the, uh, the rest of the time talking about the descendants of this one particular man, would you not say that God holds great importance in the seed of that man? I would say that he does. Deuteronomy Chapter thirty two Let's see that Deuteronomy Chapter thirty two And verses eight and 9. Here is one of these passages where just within a few words you have a mountain of truth that you find exemplified in the rest of scripture. When the most high there is that name the most high assigned to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam He set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For Jehovah's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. That has to do with Israel and the earth. That's a very important element of prophecy. I recommend the study of the five books of Moses because the five books of Moses prophetically take you from the beginning of the history of this world all the way to Israel dwelling safely in their land. Deuteronomy 33. You have a progression after the curse for their disobedience is pronounced upon them. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, he only spends, I think, about 15 verses talking about the blessing and the rest of the 68 verses about the cursing. Because they were disobedient to him you begin with a progression from chapter 29 all the way to uh, the end of the blessing of Moses upon the tribes, where he goes through the history of their departure from him, what he's going to do with them in the end of days. You have that in uh, chapters 30 and 31. You have the song in chapter 32 where he sees they reach rock bottom and he steps in by his own power and delivers them. That has nothing to do with them keeping the law. They have apostatized from him. And when he sees that their power is gone, he steps in by his own grace and delivers them. And in the 33rd chapter, they dwell safely in their land and underneath are the everlasting arms. And that has never been fulfilled. Everything prior to that was provisional and was forfeited by their unbelief. God used that forfeiting to bring forth the mystery of Christ and the assembly, which was hidden God. Not in the Old Testament, it was hidden God. And now we have this new thing that by the grace of God, we are invited to participate in. Key element of prophecy number four that I noted, the judgment of the mass and the salvation of the elect. Sometimes we hear brothers say, that there are two teachings like sovereignty and responsibility that are like railroad tracks, and they just go side by side. Well, this is another one. The judgment of the mass and the salvation of the elect. Those go hand in hand. Let's answer a question about prophecy. What does prophecy do? What's one of the purposes of prophecy? Some of the purposes. Here's two of the purposes of prophecy. Number one, in connection with the judgment of the mass... It levels warnings against the unbelievers. Number two, in connection with the remnant of faith, it comforts and directs them. Now, you can see this thought of the judgment of the mass and the salvation of the elect. You can see this all it runs all through the scriptures, all through the prophet. What did Peter say when he preached on the day of Pentecost? Save yourselves from this perverse generation. There you have the judgment of the Mass and the salvation of the elect. Where is the first time in Scripture that we have the judgment of the Mass and the salvation of the elect? Where's the first time in Scripture? you think of it? The flood. The flood. There, right there. Early on in Earth's history, you have God illustrates the judgment of the Mass and the salvation of the elect. Now... Go to the New Testament and find the different places where the flood is mentioned, and you'll learn some interesting things about this very principle. When you are studying prophecy, uh, number five, think about key expressions. I'll give you three of them right now. End of days. In the New Translation, that expression is pretty consistently translated. It is not consistently translated in the King James Bible, and I've checked some other translations, and it's kind of, you know, better here and not so good here. The expression end of days. You might want to jot this down. There is a footnote in the New Translation to Isaiah 2, verse 2 where he lists all of the different places where the expression end of days is found. You'll find a few of them in Deuteronomy that I just mentioned. So note the places where you have the expression end of days. It shines a tremendous light on God's purposes in prophecy. Um, Another expression that has been very helpful to me, notice the word generation such as this generation. This generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. You see the word generation in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it's a theme that's taken up in various places in scripture. This generation signifies a, as it's been put, a moral generation of individuals who have perennially rejected the testimony of God. It's a solemn study, but that's a very important expression to see uh, in scripture. Here's another expression that's good to notice the places where you have it, and that's the expression, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in, uh, in the, uh, uh, Eric mentioned the Olivet Prophecy, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, very important for the study of prophecy. The day of the Lord is the beginning of his coming in power when he judges his enemies, and it goes all the way through the millennial kingdom because the millennium is a time of judgment. He reigns in righteousness. Now go back to a previous thing that I said. Scripture contemplates a complete change of dispensation. There was a day, many here have read about this, where through, a, uh, through an accident that uh, Mr. Darby had, He was laid up for a while and he was reading in the book of Isaiah and he saw in Isaiah chapter 32, verse one, where it says, a king shall reign in righteousness. And he saw at that moment, there will be a complete change of dispensation. So I'll let you follow that up. That's a very important teaching. The day of the Lord, uh, Isaiah chapter two, and verse twelve: There shall be a day of the Lord, and there's going to be a day when the mountain of the Lord's house, the Lord's house, will be established in the mountains. There's a number of different places, Amos, Joel, uh, a number of times where we have the expression "the day of the Lord." There is going to be a complete change of dispensation. Now, there are uh, there are a lot of other things that we could talk about. These are just some some basic points that have been a help to me in, in, guiding, in guiding my thoughts through uh, the different elements of prophecy. Now, there was, uh, in the last meeting, also, it was mentioned, there's a difference between the covenants and the mysteries. And you can look up in the scripture and you can see uh, some of those, uh, of the mentions of where those are. And there are some very... Uh, There are some good things to read on these uh, subjects. I know that uh, Mr. Darby has a fairly lengthy paper in the Collected Writings on the Covenants, and um, William Kelly has a paper on the Mysteries and the Mysteries and the Covenants, I think it's called. And um, if you look at some of the passages of Scripture in some of the commentaries, you can find some great help on some of these subjects. I have been much helped by the writings of some of these men and and others as well on how the scripture takes up some of these subjects. But this is very important. These are the important things for you to get a hold of for being established in the truth of God's word. So I think that fits in well with the dispensational scheme of things. Scripture is clear and distinct in its statements. Scripture deals in details. You cannot just say, well this sounds like this, so it means the same thing. And I think that some of what we were talking about this morning with covenantal theology and so forth, I have noticed that often expressions that sound somewhat the same, but are distinct, are meant to, are, are made to mean the same thing. I will give you an example. The verse was read in Ephesians chapter 1 of verse 10 the dispensation of the fullness of times. I checked one commentator one time to see what he said on Galatians chapter four, I believe it is, when it says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He says, what is the dispensation of the fullness of times? There you have it in Galatians. It's when the Lord Jesus came. Because it says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. But in the fullness of time is not equivalent to the dispensation or the administration of the fullness of time. Galatians chapter 4 is clearly about the birth of the Lord Jesus into this world. Come of a woman, come under the law, the beginning of his ministry here in the world. The dispensation of the fullness of times, the context in Ephesians chapter 1 is very clearly a gathering together of everything under his headship, things in heaven and things in earth. That's a future thing. So that's just an example. Scripture is meant to be read carefully. So these are just a few things that came to mind. I, I hope that this is helpful. Um, there is a lot more territory that could be covered, but, but uh, for now, I think these are some things that uh, can encourage uh, each of us and each of you when you're younger to take up the scriptures and see that God gives us these patterns of things uh, in, his, uh, in his word. Comments? Uh, questions? clarifications what was your first point I give to write. Yeah. the uh, the, uh, the first the first one that I noted was that um, as we have in uh, did did everybody hear what he said what was uh, the the first of the elements of prophecy that I mentioned was um, was that the primary, the, the subject, and the center of all prophecy is the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of pro- prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the center of all God's counsels. One day, the seed of the woman will, who bruised the serpent's head With his work of redemption, he will rid this scene of all evil, and he will be head over all. And I I might mention also, relative to prophecy, many times when prophecy is taken up, the emphasis is upon events transpiring in the world. The primary emphasis in prophecy is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we just get interested in events, it's kind of like Mr. Kelly said at one point regarding a historicist approach to scripture. He said if people would stop trying to see the Irish potato famine in scripture and would let the scriptures teach what they do, they would gain some help on scripture, and you know, um, I, I would recommend, I'm, I'm one for recommending good writings. I think Mr. Kelly has two books on the Revelation. He's got the introductory lectures, and, he, and then he has two books. The The small book, it's called Revelation Expounded, which he put together later in life, I think is, is really one of the best, if not the best book on the book of Revelation. However, his big book, The Lectures on Revelation, The introduction to that, it's several pages long, where he responds to the historicism of Bishop Elliot, is excellent regarding the language of prophecy and how we view things, and how um, what I just mentioned, the kind of things you have to watch out for in just willy nilly saying, oh, well, this is a fulfillment of prophecy, and that was a fulfillment of prophecy. and oh, in this prophecy here we see airplanes, and in this prophecy here we see this and that and the other. Um, Though it is true that there are things such as the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, which do give us a picture of something that has happened in history. It's very important to distinguish the difference. And that introduction that he writes to that larger volume of lectures, lectures on the Revelation, is very good. I, I highly recommend that. So, among other things, so, any um, anybody. Uh, yeah,
1: any other you, could you, real quickly, go over the six points again of the.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll just. Yeah, I'll just. Uh, I'll just read them off. The, the first what point. What he the uh, uh, he asked about going over again, just the uh, six points that I had. I tried to say the number be- before each one. Maybe I forgot. I don't know. The first one was that the primary, uh, the subject and center of all revelation is Christ. He is at the center of the teaching of scripture. Number two, scripture contemplates a complete change of dispensation. This present age will have an end. There will be another that follows. This world is not going to continue on indefinitely as it is. There will be a change of dispensation. My third point was that Israel and the earth are the theater of prophecy, not the church. Prophecy centers in Israel and the earth. God took up with Israel the seed of Abraham. His dealings governmentally are with Israel, Jerusalem at its center. And according to prophecy, he will take up with them again and will restore them in a remnant according to all of the promises that he made to the fathers. The fourth point was to notice the distinction between the judgment of the mass and the salvation of the elect. That is something that runs all through scripture. I I was just noticing uh, reading in the last few weeks how... um, I'm reading in Ezekiel right now in my own personal reading, and I read through Isaiah and Jeremiah while I was preparing for these meetings, and it was just amazing to me to see how many times within just a few verses of Scripture you can see the judgment of the mass and the salvation of the elect. He'll say something relative to the judgment coming on the apostate part of the nation, and then he will say something that comforts his people who have faith, It's just chapter after chapter after chapter that the Lord does that, and as we say, the first instance of that that we have in Scripture that God gives us as a testimony is the flood. Maybe what would we say the next one would be? Well, the the uh, yeah the next one that I think of is where where the Lord sent Abraham to rescue Lot after uh, the, the, the four kings and the five got into a fight and they fell down in the, in the slime pits and everything like that. And Abraham took the small number of men and he rescued Lot. So there you have this huge battle and a whole bunch of people die and Lot gets saved. Now, of course, the next one is Lot also. He is rescued out of... Sodom before God rains fire and brimstone. There you have this thought of a warning given. And and then he comes out and then the judgment comes down. And so that's a, a little picture you might say of, of souls who are taken out of this scene before the judgment falls. Well, you know, you can see, just in mentioning those few examples, that uh, there have been a number of cases like that. That is how god works the uh the fifth point that i made was notice learning to notice key expressions in scripture that are used time and time and time again and one of those is end of days i think you have it like 14 times in scripture i think i I actually came across one one time that i don't think was in uh that was even listed there and i can't remember where it is but uh Uh, 14 or so times in scripture, you have that expression, the end of days. And if you look at the context of each of those, it tells you the same story. So you see, God is going to do something. He's going to make a change in dispensation. Uh, The expression, this generation. Um, The expression, the day of the Lord. Here's another expression that I'll give you that's very interesting to study in scripture. The vine. Just look up where you have the expression, the vine, and see see how the Lord lays this out at different times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament regarding fruitfulness, something being brought forth for him and what he has to do with it when it doesn't bear fruit for him. That's a very profitable study. Uh, The sixth point that I made, uh, that uh, I uh, actually, I don't think I said this one yet. The sixth point I had down is to note that there is a distinction between tribulation and the tribulation. That's that's very that's very important because there can be confusion regarding that. The Lord Jesus said in the world ye shall have tribulation. Every one of us in our lives even though we live, even though we live in a land such as what we live in today, and we enjoy the the fruits of f- hard-won fruits of freedom and so forth, we know what it is to have tribulation. I can look I can look around this room and I can see people who have who have had horrible tribulation in their lives. I, I know that we have tribulation, but none of that is the tribulation. So there are. Um, Three expressions, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. He uses the expression, the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel, chapter 12, and verse 1, he uses the expression, a time of distress, such as has never been before. And then, again, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew, chapter 24, and verse 21, he uses the expression, there shall be great Tribulation, And the context indicates that that is a particular period of time through which his people will pass through a period of tribulation. And when you look at the context, you see that's what Daniel was talking about. And that's what Jeremiah was talking about when he said the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So again, Scripture is exact in its... Uh, expressions, and it's meant to be studied carefully. Any other comments or uh, questions? I know there's more to, to, to talk about. There's another meeting this afternoon and a meeting tomorrow. But Dan? Are prophecies being fulfilled today? So the question was, are prophecies being fulfilled today? Um, That's a hard question to answer. I would say, no, biblical prophecy is not being fulfilled today. As it's been said, men today are being allowed to reap the fruits of their departure from God. That's the mass. And meanwhile, he uh, encourages and edifies and maintains the lot of his people here below by the presence of the Holy Spirit on the earth who hasn't been taken away yet in the capacity in which he is acting now. So if prophecy was being fulfilled today, um, how would we know that it was? That's the first question that comes to my mind. And I I would also say um, that it would be more accurate to say maybe that the lines are being drawn that we know that God's providence is always active. And of course, I think along the line of what you're saying, one of the biggest questions surrounding that is the 10 kings, the European Union. You know, you got eight, and then you got nine. And somebody says, oh, the next one is 10. We're going to be raptured as soon. Well, it didn't happen. You might have 11. You might have 15. And then and then you have Brexit, and then you got one less. And... and uh how does anybody know? To me, it's all in the realm of providence because at some particular point, and again, we come back to this thought, what is at the center of prophecy? Israel and the earth. At some point, something will happen, happened, it will happen, a, a, a point of time will be reached, known only to God, And the heavenly company will be removed, and he will take up again with Israel. Now, can God do things providentially to, you might say, to to, to get the pieces on the chessboard aligned before the church is taken out? Well, of course he can. We believe he does. But I don't know that I could be, I don't know that if, if biblical prophecy is being fulfilled today, then you have to be able to turn me to the passage of the Bible, show me which one you're talking about, and show me what fulfilled it. It just seems, seems to me. And, and it, it's also a good opportunity to emphasize the fact that in all of these things, we need to have a healthy distrust of our own minds. Because... It's a noted feature of human nature, confirmation bias. We tend to find what we're looking for. So I'm sure I've said to some of you before, I have mental crutches that I use as checks and balances for my own thinking. One of them is kill your idea. If I think I see something in scripture, I don't want to go find all the evidence that that's true. I want to marshal every big gun against that idea that I can. I want to ask myself, now, how can I prove that this is not true? And you know, if you can't do that from scripture, then maybe you've got something. But you need to have a healthy distrust of your own mind because many of the different kinds of systems around us, and I I like to go to the roots. I, I like the study of origins. And if you go to the origin of many of these, uh, all these uh, different teachings that we have around us, uh, many that uh, uh, came from the 19th century and so forth, uh, that, you know, the United States, that hotbed of religious and uh, um, all kinds of strange thinking and everything. What did a lot, where did a lot of those things come from? That's a good question to ask. What was the origin of the teaching? And when you go back, when you trace something back to its origin, you often see the moral roots of the thing. And one of the, thing, one of the things that you always look for is if a system of teaching, if it makes a complete break with the past, that's a red flag. That's a real red flag. You know, most cults do that. They'll come out and they'll say, "Oh." Absolutely everything up until now was completely wrong. We have to start a new thing. And you know, the early brethren, they didn't do that. you know what they did? They went back to that which was from the beginning. That's what we have to do. And then you can go on in the history of the church and you can see the different times where they assimilated things but but also corrected things and came to a much more accurate view of what the scriptures actually teach. So a healthy um, distrust of our own minds. Good to have checks and balances and good to consult with others who have gone before us, who have been people of the word. So not that we take their word for everything, but that we are willing to receive help and to weigh what is said. I'm thankful for others that have uh, uh, provided that for me in my life. I'm very thankful for that.
1: Actually, unless there's one other pressing questions, I just
0: realized and I, want to thank the, I want to thank the younger uh, kids. Um, I know
1: these are a little longer meetings, and so thank you for yeah. your patience and just being quiet. But uh, maybe we can give them an extra five minutes. Uh, unless there's a pressing question from someone.
0: We do have one more meeting. It'll we'll start at 345, um, and
1: then that will go till... 515? Okay. okay. So, and then supper will be
0: uh, served. So um, maybe with that, if you want to close this out? Um, okay, we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank thee for, for this time. And we just thank thee for the scriptures that thou hast given to us and for the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit that would lead us to an understanding of the things that concern our Lord Jesus. So, Father, we ask Thee for blessing upon each one here and upon the things we take up. We pray for the hour ahead of us as we uh, look into the Scriptures a little bit more and just pray for clarity and and, uh, help for our understanding. We give thanks and pray in the name and for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen.